0: listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. It trumps everything else in your life. I know this is going to be a significant time for us this morning. Your vision of God affects every single thing about you. There is nothing in your life that is more important than a right understanding of God. Today, we're going to look at how to turn your life around. Many of us need God to do a mighty work in our lives. We need God to turn our lives around. Some of us realize that more than others. Some of us have come where we know that God needs to turn our life around. We've tried everything we could try in our own power, but we have come to the the point of realization in our lives that we don't have the power to change our own lives. We're somewhat limited. In fact, we're totally limited. It's just our understanding of that limitation. We need to be enlightened to the truth that what you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. A right understanding of God will change everything in your life. Everything in your life. Do you understand what I'm saying here? A right vision of God will change the way you live. A wrong vision of God will change the way you live. In fact, a wrong vision of God might be the very reason why you're stuck in neutral in the first place. Turn with me to our Father's word. You don't have to believe my word for it, but certainly believe the word of God in Isaiah chapter six. Pretty much in the center of the Bible, the book of Isaiah chapter six. If you've got a smartphone, you've got a, the God Factor app, you can follow along by using the Bible tab and the God Factor app. But certainly, I don't care how you follow along, just make sure you follow along. Don't take my word for it. Take it upon the word of God. In Isaiah chapter six, verse one, one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, it's there for a reason. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips." For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord the ho- of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here, I, here am I, send me. And he said go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. How you see God will change everything in your life. This is what this passage teaches us. Verse 1, it's a time of crisis of the year that King Uzziah died. This is significant. This man, King Uzziah, was 16 years old when he became the king of Judah became king of God's people, and he ruled and reigned for 52 years. His reputation is that he was a good king. He was a powerful king. He was an effective king. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we read the account of this man's life. It says this, And all the people, in verse 1 of Judah, took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And we skip down to verse 16. We're reminded that even the best that God has to offer, humanly speaking, Don't cut the mustard. All the great leaders, the kings, the ones whom God used significantly, even this particular man, at the end of their lives, they make the biggest mistakes. And it's a reminder to us all that we need someone to come down and invade our space, invade our time, and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. No mere mortal is perfect. In fact, the definition of being a mere mortal is that you are imperfect. We needed, and we need someone who is going to stand in our place, a God-man. His name is Jesus. We need someone who's without sin, someone who didn't mess up, someone who didn't Make a mistake and sin at the end of his life. His name is Jesus. All the famous kings, all the leaders in the Bible who messed up, messed up at the latter part of their life. It's a reminder to us all that no matter how good of a start we get, we must finish strong. The older we get, the greater our track record, the greater danger we're in that we too could go the way of Uzziah. 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16, but when he, Uzziah, was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He was doing what only the priest should have been doing, But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, this is a significant thing for the priests to go against the king, a show of force against the one who had a significant army who could have had all the priests instantaneously wiped out. They withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord but but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense? Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. He's going forward with it. He's not listening to reason. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. They rushed him out quickly and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him and King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, he lived in a separate house where he was excluded from the house of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died... He'd been reigning for 52 years apart from his major mistake here that we read about. He was a good and a powerful king. And the nation now is in crisis because at the death of a leader, the question is who will take his place? They're in a void here. There's a crisis. There's a leadership vacuum. Do you know of a country that has a leadership vacuum? A country that's in crisis a country where the people are holding their breath, waiting and watching. What will God do in the absence of leadership? What will God do when there's a void, a vacuum? How will it be be filled by a godly man Will it be filled by a godless man? Will it be filled by someone who's pointing people to the living and true God or detracting, distracting people from God? It's a time of national crisis in the year that King Uzziah died after 52 years of leadership. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, the King of Kings. has become the focus of the prophet. The people up to this point, up to chapter five of the book of Isaiah, they've been mocking the holiness of God. Isaiah's calling was probably before it appears chronologically in chapter six of Isaiah, but it appears here to make a point right on the heels of the people mocking the holiness of God comes the man of God, the prophet sent with the commission that while the people's eyes were on the national leader, the worldly leader, and the vacuum was real, the crisis was real, the void was real, God's man sees the king of kings as being the solution to the people's problems. No earthly king is ever the ultimate answer to the problems of the people. We, like the people at Isaiah's day, need to have a king of kings and a lord of lords. We need to look not to a mere mortal. We need to to look to the one who is above and beyond all mortals. Isaiah says, I saw Yahweh. And there's a progression that takes place here. If you look with me at verse one. Sitting upon a throne high lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is significant for us to note. Not only is the personal covenant name Yahweh used here of who's sitting on the throne, but it's important to note that the train fills where? Not the palace the temple, the very place signified, uh, designated as the dwelling place of God. The longer the train, the greater the king. The train was a symbol of authority, a symbol of how powerful and how significant the king was. And so here, when Isaiah is having this vision, we take note that he sees Yahweh seated on on a throne, and the robe, the trade of that robe is so long, so flowing, so significant that it fills not just the area where the king of kings is seated, but it fills the entire temple, meaning very clearly the symbolism is that this king is not a mere mortal. This is the king of of kings, the Lord of lords. In the time of national crisis, the people need to turn to God. And this is our problem in the United States of America today. Hear me, hear me. We're setting our sights too low. We expect Congress and the President to be the solution to all of our problems when our real problems are spiritual in nature. The more things change, the more they stay the same. I don't know what has happened to us in this nation where we have accepted the lie that the solutions to our problems, which were created by men, can be solved by men. The problems we face in this country are God-sized. They are epic in nature. They're huge. We could talk all day about the deficit itself and how it is no longer possible to get out from underneath the deficit. Have you come to terms with that? It's no longer possible for the United States of America to get out from underneath its deficit. The wheels are in motion. Fiscally. The wheels are in motion, it is no longer possible. You cannot tax all of the rich people and have enough revenue to take care and offset the deficit. The wheels are already in motion. The problems we're facing as a nation are epic. They are huge. Mere mortals created the problems. We got ourselves into this mess. And we're reminded that just like Isaiah, Isaiah's time of crisis, the crisis of the people of Israel Of Judah here, where Uzziah had been the king, the crisis would either lead them to a cop-out or it would become a catalyst. What do I mean by that? Don't waste your crisis. Your crisis can be the greatest opportunity for God to show up. And to do what he does best, he knows how to save. He knows how to rescue. Now when I was in college years ago, seems like more years than I like to remember, I had an appetizer. You know that I'm married now, that's the main course. I had mean appetizer. Yesterday we were out in Lancaster and we were around looking at a few different places, some, doing some sightseeing, and of course when you're in Lancaster, You don't say Lancaster. When you're in Lancaster, you go to a place to eat. You go to, in a word, shady maple smorgasbord. That's what I'm talking about. Interesting place, you know, I think that place qualified for stimulus money. I almost got broadsided by a woman on her way to the New York strip Steak. They needed to put speed bumps and traffic lights inside the building. It's a feeding frenzy. But I had an appetizer when I was in college, a woman that I dated for a while. Now, I'm not being disrespectful when I say that because the flip side is that I was her appetizer. She got married, too, to somebody else. I had asked her to marry me. She said, yes, she would. And then within a few months, I found myself backtracking here, she had broken up with me and I was completely devastated. I went for three or four years in deep, deep depression, wasting my crisis. Wasting my crisis. Wasting my crisis. See, many of us, when crisis comes, we can just take it as a cop-out, nothing I can do about it. It's out of my control, God's sovereign. Listen, don't blame God for everything to the point where you don't have to take responsibility for what's happening in your life. Many of us do that. And for years, I was wasting the crisis that God had given to me on a silver platter as the greatest opportunity I had to do what? To call out to God. So your crisis will either be a cop-out or it will become a catalyst, a catalyst. A catalyst a catalyst for you to be absolutely transformed, for God to turn your life around. See, it's not that we turn our lives around. It's that God, if you give him the opportunity, will turn your life around. If you'll give God your crisis, if you will call out to God, God will turn your crisis into a catalyst and a tremendous commissioning. God will transform you. God knows how to turn your life around, but you cannot waste your crisis in this nation. People listening by podcast, we have a tremendous opportunity for us to come together, not to try to have political solutions, which they've been trying to fight for since the beginning of mankind, but spiritual solutions. We're in a spiritual recession in this country. It's a spiritual famine that we're in in this country because the crisis is here and God's people don't seem to be calling out to God. We seem to be throwing, there's not much that I can do about it anyway. Oh well, que sera, sera. No, there is something we can do about it. We can repent of the fact that we have neglected the living and true God. We've looked toward mere mortals as a solution to our spiritual problems. We have neglected the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, the same one whom Isaiah saw, the train of his robe filling the temple. We've turned every place except the very throne of God for the solutions to our problems. And so, many of us in this great time of national crisis, the most significant crisis this nation has faced since the Great Depression. In fact, it's probably going to be said when the books of history are written that what we're facing now as a nation and what we're facing now internationally is probably the the single greatest crisis that the known world has faced because now people live over the whole face of the earth. The whole world is occupied. And if you don't think the world is interrelated and interconnected with globalization, remember that challenging thought, the next time there's a Euro crisis headline in the newspaper, the next time you hear about the fiscal cliff and the repercussions of that on an international basis, See, I'm afraid we're doing that now as a nation. We're wasting the crisis. We're going about churches being planted, people coming to church. The show must go on, whatever that means, when it comes to God's house. Business as usual when there's nothing usual about what's happening. It's unusual what's happening in unusual times. God's people do unusual things. They call out to the Lord. Why do I say unusual things? Because what happens is we get used to going about our business without God. And what should be usual, calling out to the Lord, depending upon Him, asking Him to intervene, asking Him to change us, asking Him to do in us, with us, to us, and through us what we can't do for ourselves, that should be normal. But we forget about it because we become distracted. If we become distracted, we opt out of the opportunity for crisis to be a catalyst in our lives. That's true at a national level. It's also true at a personal level. You know, I, I wasted my crisis during that time when I was dating that gal and afterward. Boy, it seemed so epic. I needed to be with, back with her and now I look back and I thank God that I got the woman of God that I got in my wife, Janet. If I had settled for that appetizer and filled my, myself up on that appetizer, I would have never had the woman of God that I have today. And in all kindness, the husband of the woman who I dated in college would have never had the man of God that she has today. But see, what happened to me is I began to realize that God had struck me. Yes, He allowed me to be hit, and it hurt. It hurt deeply, it ruined the rest of my college time. Years of college, it went into after I graduated from college, I remember standing on my back porch watching a squirrel one day munch on a nut. I watched the squirrel munching on this nut, never forget it, there he is with the nut in his hands, rotating it, filling up his cheeks. And I remember thinking, I'll never know what it's like to be happy again. I literally forgot what it was to be happy and joyous. You're never at your greatest defining moment until you come to the end of your barrel, to the end of your rope, the bottom of the barrel. See, oftentimes God is perfectly willing to allow us to get to the bottom of the barrel, the end of our rope, because it's then when we realize the crisis is significant. It's at that moment when the crisis becomes a catalyst. And that's what happened with Isaiah. This is what happened in his life. He sees the Lord at this time of national crisis, this void is there, and he sees instead the king of kings seated on a throne. And this becomes a catalyst for what? Look, In verse 2, above him stood seraphim. It means burning ones. Probably an indication of their passion for the glory of God, the holiness of God. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another. We don't know if this is just two seraphim, two seraphs involved here, or perhaps two rose, involved, but we do know what they're saying. They say one four-letter word three times. In fact, it's the only attribute of God that is said three times times—a number of completeness. See, you and I as believers in Jesus, when we come to know Christ, we're made holy. We didn't begin holy when we were born into this world. But God is totally, perfectly, flawlessly holy in his very essence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. It's like a military tribunal. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. A very similar situation, similar instance happens here in that particular passage of scripture. Do we have that? Right now, the technical person is shaking. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. God has shown up here. This is when Moses was encountering the Lord and the mountain is shaking. Now Isaiah is in this midst of this event where the crisis has become a catalyst. A catalyst for what? A catalyst for him to see God in a way he had never seen him before. You see, the problems that happen in your life, the problems that are happening in this nation are an opportunity to see God in a way you've never seen Him before. If you take your crisis as a cop-out, rather than a catalyst, you're going to miss the opportunity to see and behold God in a way that you never would have seen Him before. When crisis comes your way, you don't run away from it, you embrace it. You run to the crisis when you have a health problem. You run to the financial problem. You run to the in, the, the marital problem that you're having in your relationship. You run to the problem that you're having with your children and raising your kids in your your workplace with your co-workers or with your boss or with your uh, subordinates, those who are working with you. In the church ministry, we don't run away from conflict. That's the way we deal with things in the flesh. We deal with things in an immature way where we avoid conflict. See, God's priority in your life is not comfort and convenience. It's the manifestation of his presence. When you and I begin to realize that the purpose of God in your life and mine is not to make us comfortable, not to give us convenient lives. In fact, stop asking God to make everything in your life work out. Start asking God to make his presence so manifest in your life that no demon from hell, no difficulty on this earth, nothing will separate you from the love of God. That anything and everything that comes your way, crisis, bring it on. It's an opportunity. It's a catalyst. For what? For me to see God. For other people to see God. Your crisis is the greatest opportunity that God himself, yes, may have stricken you on purpose. Yes, does it hurt? Yes, it hurts how much more than it's possible at times to put into words. The greater the crisis, the greater the catalyst, but you cannot opt out. You cannot sleep during the crisis. You've got to pay attention. You've got to embrace it. You've got to say, this is an opportunity from the very throne of God for me to see God in a way I never would have seen Him. And once you begin to see God in ways that you've never seen Him before, your whole life will begin to change. Your whole life will begin to change. Those of you who know what it is to go through difficult health situations know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm not blowing smoke when I say that, holy or otherwise. I'm a cancer survivor. I laid on my back for months wondering if I'd even live. And I'll tell you what, it's in your time of crisis in your time of difficulty, in your time of hardship, when you need to watch for God to walk by, because he will. I had encounters with God, just me, myself, and I, in that hospital room on the fourth floor at Carolina's Medical Center that nobody knows about. And if I wasn't in my crisis, I wouldn't have had the catalyst. I would not have seen God the way I saw him. We've got to stop Americanizing the Bible. God is not interested in the American dream. He's interested in giving you a vision of himself. And oftentimes the vision of God comes because of the crisis, not in spite of it, but you can't opt out. Isaiah sees God in the midst of this crisis it becomes a catalyst. And look at verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He experiences deep conviction. Now, we've got the That's understanding of conviction. We don't totally understand it. There's a difference between condemnation. The Bible says in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is conviction. Conviction of sin. And when you and I get a clear picture of who God is and the holiness of God. Isaiah realized that he was looking at something that no mere mortal should have seen, Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Isaiah is beholding the glory of God, and he realizes in verse 20 of Exodus 33, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Isaiah realizes, I'm seeing the Lord of lords, the King of kings. I am beholding Yahweh. I am in big trouble because no mere mortal can see God and live. I am seeing something I should not have privy to be looking at. I'm looking at the Lord. In Exodus 33, when Moses was encountering God and he says, now show me your presence, show me your face. And the Lord says, I'll let you see my back, but you can't see my face because nobody can see me and live So when Isaiah has a vision of the holiness of God, he immediately is looking at himself and realizing that he has fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and it's true whether you read it in the Old Testament or you read it in the New. The crisis led to a catalyst, led to his own conviction. He's convicted over his own sin. When you are spending time in the presence of God and you begin to get a picture of God, You cannot help but get a clear picture understanding of your own sin. Your own need for God to help you and to do something in you, to change you and transform you. Now, I I love that our president, during the inauguration, put his hand on the Bible of the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. I love that he did that. On September 7th, 1864, the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln had this to say about that Bible. He said, in regard to this great book, I have but this to say, it is the best gift God has given to man. All the good the Savior gave the world was communicated through this book. Abraham Lincoln in reference to the Bible. Now you might say to yourself, I can't necessarily, how can I have a vision of God The way Isaiah had a vision of God. I'm not in charge of that. There's a sense in which it's almost like Isaiah was about minding his own business and then God decides one day to show up and say, I'm going to give you a vision of myself. Now, we can't determine whether or not we're going to have a vision of God. Or can we? I can't tell God to give me some type of a mystic, prophetic type of a vision from God that's going to revolutionize my life? Or can you? Maybe the 16th president of the United States has got some insight for us today that's relevant and pertinent today. We've got this thing called the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. You start spending time in this book, the Word of God, you start meditating and chewing on the Word of God, you begin to get a vision of God. You begin to get a right understanding of God. You begin to get a right understanding of you in relationship to God. Your whole world begins to make sense from whose paradigm? Not yours, but from God's. God begins to do a mighty work because of the crisis that you're facing, because of the crisis you might be facing coming up that you might not even know about. It's on the horizon. The crisis becomes a catalyst. The catalyst draws you to the Lord in His Word, the Bible the B-I-B-L-E. You get into the Word of God and you get convicted. Convicted just like Isaiah did when he saw the Lord. Convicted of your own sin. Convicted that you need someone to do in you, with you, to you, and through you what you can't do for yourself. You start to get convicted and what happens? You begin to get sanctified. You get cleansed. Look at what happened to Isaiah verses 6 and 7. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, probably the altar of incense, And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Probably the imagery is that they would put the incense on the altar of incense. Smoke would rise up, reminding us that nobody can look directly at the face of God. The smoke would be a reminder of the prayers of God's people and the sin being atoned for going up, a reference of looking forward to Christ, the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. See, Isaiah became convicted of his own sin and he was cleansed and set apart and commissioned. Verse eight, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go first? Then I said, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. You know, in my own life, I started preaching the gospel as a direct result of my three to four years of clinical depression as a result of the appetizer that I spoke of earlier. That was a crisis that God used in my own life which became a catalyst, which God used to convict me of my own sin and my own own unwillingness to serve Him in a way that I was fearful of serving Him. And then it was through that I began to call out on Him that He replaced my cowardice. And He gave me the courage to preach the gospel on a train station platform. See, I don't know of another way to do it. There are many of us in Christian circles who are trying to live for Christ backwards. We're trying to do it in our own strength. We're trying to give God something out of our own natural human power, thinking that God wants us to just try harder. God wants us to work harder. Listen, work is important. It's significant that we try to honor and serve God, but the way that happens is an overflow of having a right vision of him. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you. A right vision of God will transform everything about your understanding of God, your understanding of yourself, and your ability to be sent out and commissioned by him. It's absolutely true that you cannot serve God to the degree you otherwise would unless you have a vision of the God you want to serve. How ironic it would be If you want to tell other people about a God whom you yourself don't even know. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.